Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I look around, I see that we have a number of uh, visitors who are not usually with us. So glad to have you. It may seem a little strange to you that I'm preaching on what might historically be thought of as a Christmas message. So just a word of explanation for those of you who are visiting. I've commenced a series of preaching through the Gospels, not one at a time, but preaching through the various events that are recorded in each of the Gospels. So uh, when I come to the feeding of the 5,000, it's recorded in all four Gospels, but I will plan to just preach uh, from one of those texts. And uh, so uh, we have something in the Gospel of Luke that is recorded only in the Gospel of Luke. There's something in this text that uh, causes me and others to think that this was a personal story that the, the Virgin Mary, as an older woman, having had several other children after Jesus, told to Luke. Luke prefaces his gospel with saying that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that uh, a person named Theophilus may know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. And so it, uh, there are a few things that Luke has in his gospel that no one else has, not in any of the other three gospels, and this is one of those instances. It's one of the most famous uh, stories from the life of Christ. Uh, many of us uh, grew up watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and uh, this is uh, the passage that Linus reads when Charlie Brown in frustration cries out, what's really the meaning of Christmas? And Linus reads from this passage of Scripture. Uh, so let me read the text, and then I'll tell you what I propose that we get out of it. And then, with God's help, I'll try to preach from it. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, 
the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We'll save verse 21 for a later time. But from these first 20 verses, notice these five things. First of all, God's kaleidoscope. God's kaleidoscope. And then secondly, and that in a low condition. Thirdly, we will see here a likely audience. Fourth, hark the herald angels sing. And finally, the shepherd's example. So first of all, God's kaleidoscope It may be that uh, there are some of you who do not know what a kaleidoscope is. That's unfortunate because it's one of the greatest inventions of all time. It is uh, usually a small tube that you can hold in your hand, and uh, the inside of the tube is is covered with mirrors in a kind of geodesic shape. And then at the end, there is a translucent end that has either bits of broken glass or bits of plastic in there, so that when you look through one end and you turn the tube on the end, then the bits of glass or the bits of plastic are constantly refiguring, and the reflection on the mirrors inside the tube gives you a virtually inexhaustible, I'm, I'm tempted to say infinite, arrangement of beautiful shapes. I have one in my office. I I thought about bringing it. In fact, I forgot to bring it up here, but on further consideration, thought that it might be a distraction. And uh, but if you are a child who has never looked through a kaleidoscope, after the service, I will try to let you look through my kaleidoscope. It is a it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I've titled this first uh, point of this sermon. God's kaleidoscope, because I'm convinced that every day God is putting on a kaleidoscopic display of his glory and his wisdom. And there are some days that it's just a small thing. It's just maybe the the bloom of a crocus after a cold winter or the song of a darkling thrush at the turning of the year or some something else that causes you to once again be reminded that God is in his heaven and he is in control. But then there are other days when there is something like a massive earthquake that kills tens of thousands of people. There are things like there are things like a Roman emperor taking the idea that he is going to 
take a census of the entire Roman world and, of all things, everyone is going to go to his hometown in order to register for this census. Now, you can be sure that when Caesar Augustus issued this decree, he had no idea that he was going to be fulfilling Scripture. And that... All right, I'm in kind of a cry mood today, so I'm going to have to kind of take it easy here. And he had no idea that living in some little hut in the north of this wretched little land of Israel, there was a girl who was about to have a baby, and it was extremely inconvenient for her to go with her betrothed husband to the place where his family came from. He was a descendant of David, and this was not a very prestigious thing at that time. I can imagine that uh, it, it, it may have even uh, provoked derision if Joseph or anyone close to him would have said, well, we are, after all, of the house and line of David. As prestigious as that ought to have been, that seems like such a distant thing in the past. More than a thousand years before the time of Joseph and Mary, that David lived and reigned, but he was, and God was keeping track of all of this because it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born into the house and family of David, and it also had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the town of David. And Bethlehem is the town of David. That's where David grew up. That is where he drank from the well, and uh, so it was known as the town of David. And so God turns his kaleidoscope. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like a string, and he turns it wherever he wants. And so, not conscious that he was in the hand of the Lord at all, not at all attempting to fulfill any scripture whatsoever, Caesar Augustus gets the idea that the entire Roman world should be registered and everyone should go to his hometown to register. And as certainly as God turned his kaleidoscope that day, he is turning his kaleidoscope this day. God is in control of all things. The good things that happen to you, the beautiful things that you see, the hard things that happen to you, it all is under the control of God And it all has the potential to fill you with wonder and awe. Though there are days when the colors seem to be muted and you can't quite understand what's going on. I mean, who can figure out the physics of a kaleidoscope? Who can predict that when I turn it this quarter of a turn, now the blue colors will become dominant. But if I turn it three quarters of a turn, the red colors will become dominant. God has a decree. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But the rule of our conduct is not. What are the physics of the kaleidoscope? What's the secret plan behind it all? But the rule of our conduct is day by day what has God revealed that we are to do with this day? How are we to obey him today 
to change the metaphor, it is not our responsibility to write the play. It is our responsibility to perform well the part that has been assigned to us. To enter the stage when the great playwright determines, to exit the stage when the great playwright determines. Our times are in God's hands. And as topsy-turvy and as helter-skelter as a kaleidoscope might be, if you had the knowledge and you could figure out all the, the gravity and the shape and the, and the centrifugal force and all that is at work, you could predict exactly what the next shape in that kaleidoscope was going to be. It's not accidental what happens next. It all could be explained if we just knew it. And that's how it is with God's plan. There's purpose in all of it. God has designed it all and God is in control of it all. And it all is going to work out for his glory and for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. But in this passage of scripture, I wonder how many hundreds of thousands of people had to undergo an inconvenient journey to the town of their ancestors for the purpose of Jesus getting carried in the womb of the Virgin Mary to Bethlehem of Judea so that Jesus might be born there. And it may seem like, well, you know, that's a terrible lot of inconvenience, but the fact of the matter is all things that have been created have been created for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything, not just the the displacement of Tens of thousands of people during the time of Caesar Augustus. But this whole world was made by him and it was made for him. And so all things that are going on now, though it may be mysterious from our limited vision, uh, and we don't see how it all is working together, yet be assured that God is in control of his kaleidoscope. Well, that's the first point. It's uh, worth noting that Luke anchors this event in historically identifiable times when Quirinius was governor of Syria and uh, Caesar Augustus issues this decree. And so the the Bible is trustworthy not because we can point to passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture like this that roots it in historically identifiable events. The Bible is trustworthy because it is God's Word and God confirms it to be true in those who need to know that it is true. But still, along the way, there are these little uh, thumbtacks that say this really happened. There's archaeological evidence. There's historical evidence that demonstrates that this is true. To me, that's just a a secondary issue. But nevertheless, it is true. But now let's move on and let's see something else here, which I have perhaps mysteriously to your ears entitled, and that in a low condition. That is a phrase that is taken from an answer in the Baptist Catechism to the question, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, there's my phrase, 
and that in a low condition. Being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The next question is, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? We'll have to save that for another time. Let's just focus now on this one phrase from that answer, that Christ was born and that in a low condition. So when Jesus was born, <clears throat> I, just try to, I just try to go through this with my own six experiences of a wife, the same wife, all six times, waking up in the middle of the night, usually, and saying, I think it's time. Or some sort of noise that indicated the same. <clears throat> it is time. And all the excitement that goes along with that. You know, so for nine months, we have seen the belly grow. We have seen those little elbows and those little knees making their way across the belly. And there has been, in, in the case of my own wife, three months of, of vomiting and lying on the couch. And then... Six months of, uh, sometimes six months of feeling better, not always that long. And such anticipation and all the joy. Our first, firstborn child, who is with us today, was uh, born in West, well, she was born in Tennessee. So it's actually the second child who is not with us today. Hard to keep track of all those kids and where they were born. Was born in West Virginia. <clears throat> and we lived one hour from the hospital. And uh, so the, the, the ride to the hospital did not take an hour that night. Uh, but still, you know, along the way you're thinking, I think this baby is going to come right now. And just all of the, the excitement that goes along with that, what am I going to do? And just imagine that you had to make a journey on foot, maybe on a donkey, but not on a car, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is probably 80 to 100 miles. And you're nine months pregnant. And uh, so when, when they get there, then Mary says, Joseph, I think it's time. And I can imagine that Joseph says, I'm going to go right into this inn, and I'm going to get us a place. And he goes in. We need a room. I'm sorry there are no rooms to be had. Um, listen, my wife is going to have a baby. Uh, we need a room. I, I'm sorry. There are no rooms. I can imagine that Joseph might get a little testy. This is an emergency situation. And <clears throat> those days, people weren't up in the room watching videos they were all hanging around in the, in the place where they get fed. Will any of you give up your room to a, a pregnant woman? I, we, we, can, we can compensate you. I'm not sure about that part. But anyway, he goes out and he has to tell Mary, Mary, I'm, I'm sorry. He said that we could go to the stable. And... Uh, and so you, you think about, you ladies who have had babies, just think about if you had to have your baby in a barn. And this is not one of those nice little 
cleaned up nativity scenes that we see outside homes and outside churches. This is a barn. I mean, you people who have lived on farms or gone to grandparents' farms, think of what the barn smells like. Think of how unclean the barn is. And I'm sure that Joseph did his best to make there to be a clean spot. But when Jesus was born, he almost certainly was born into a place where there were germs everywhere. And there were animals and all the sort of things that go with animals and the smells that come. When Jesus came into this world, he did not get born in a hospital. He did not get born in a palace. He was born and that in a low condition. And there are two things in this story that tell about his low condition. And the one thing is how Mary dressed him. So the King James Version says that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. I don't know that I've ever encountered the word swaddling anywhere else. I'm not sure that I've ever heard someone call a feed trough a manger. But uh, that's what a manger is. It is a feed trough. But what are, what are swaddling cloths? Well, it was not the usual thing that a baby would be dressed in because we'll see that the angel gives the message to the shepherds. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So both of these things were unusual. <clears throat> and... Uh, So I would say that even a poor person, like Joseph and Mary certainly were, even a poor person might scrape together whatever goods he or she might have and acquired some kind of a little outfit for the newborn baby to wear. Maybe it's like today, and and, uh, relatives and friends would have pitched in. I mean, if you had anything, you you would have a little sleeper to put on the baby Something to put on the little baby. How, how blessed we are when we bring our babies home from the hospital. They've got more clothes than they can possibly wear before they outgrow them. But not Jesus. He was born in a low condition. Uh, the Bible is not particular about these strips of cloth that he was in. But I can imagine that it was just whatever rags Mary could scrape together maybe even tearing some parts from her own robe. I don't know. The point is, this was a poor family and a poor baby. And uh, no, no fancy little bassinet, no nice little car seat to put Jesus in. Instead, I'm sure that Joseph got together a few, a few handfuls of the cleanest hay that he could find in that place and put them in that feed trough And that's where they laid Jesus. Out of his ivory palaces. Into this world of woe. As he comes down, George Herbert says, he gave his crown to the stars. He gave his bow to the clouds. He gave his spear to the fire. He gave his azure mantle to the sky. And as he gave it all away, someone asked him, what are you going to wear? And he said, well, there are new clothes preparing for me below. And when he came, then clothed in flesh, 
the Godhead see and hail the incarnate deity. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth from me. But in Bethlehem's room was there found no home for thy holy nativity. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. When he came, he came, and that in a low condition. Now the third thing that I want you to see is the announcement was made to a likely audience. That is not the way I originally titled this point. I originally thought this is an unlikely audience, the shepherds, an unlikely audience. But the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that this was a likely audience. Well, I thought it was unlikely because at this time there were seminaries. When Jesus spoke in such a powerful way, those around him marveled, how did this man get such learning without having studied? He hasn't been to our schools. How does he know this stuff? So there were seminaries. There were schools of, uh, of prophets, and there were schools of Pharisees, and there were schools of Sadducees, and there were gatherings of people who probably had the Old Testament memorized. And so it at first seemed unlikely to me that God would send his angel to announce the birth of his son to shepherds. What an unlikely group, I thought. And I started thinking to myself, why shepherds? Why shepherds? And I thought, well, these are people who are not distracted. No cell phones in those days. Nothing for the shepherds to do except talk to one another. I don't know if they were awake when the angel came or not. There's not a lot of distraction when you're a shepherd. You watch the sheep, and at night, hopefully the sheep are bedded down, and, uh, and then there comes an announcement to them. I, I think that it's a likely audience because they were not so distracted. And I think this is an important point to preach to an audience in the 21st century. This is one reason why some of you have so few visitations from heaven. You're too busy. You, you, don't, you don't ever have times when you don't have your earbuds in. You don't ever have times when you're not listening to the fill-in-the-blank, when you are not fiddling with your electronic device, when you are not constantly fretful about something that has to be done. You're going to have to slow down. If you want to have interaction with heaven, you're going to have to stop making haste. God's not in a hurry. He's not going to run to try to keep up with you. He's not going to send some angel to fly at breakneck speed to catch up with you. If you are going to be a likely audience for heavenly visitations, your life needs to look more like a shepherd's life than it does right now. John Bunyan, in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, has his band of pilgrims come upon a poor shepherd's boy who is dressed in rags. And they hear him singing a song. And this is the song that he sings. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. 
I am content with what I have. Little be it or much. And Lord, contentment still I crave. Because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is who go on pilgrimage. Here little and hereafter bliss is best from age to age. And their guide says to them, I dare say that this poor shepherd's boy has more of that herb called heart's ease than many a person who dwells in a palace. Do you have the herb of heart's ease? Are you always in a frantic hurry? Take a lesson from the shepherds. They were not distracted. They were earthy, plain people. And God saw fit to reveal himself to earthy, plain, undistracted people. And he still does for the most part. He still does. You mustn't think of shepherds as being just stumbling around stupid rednecks. Uh, To be sure, they were probably uneducated, but there have been some historical instances of shepherds who were astute knowers of God. Those of you who are interested could see an incredible example of that in a young man named John Brown of Haddington. It would be a distraction for me to go into his story right now, but you will be well rewarded if you find out about John Brown of Haddington, a poor shepherd boy who learned to read Greek without a Greek grammar. And uh, so uh, shepherds, they were a likely group. And so God sent. But now let's move on fourthly to the fourth point. Hark, the herald angels sing. I know that there are some people in here who have sung that song their entire life and have never thought about what that one phrase means. So let me explain that hark is an old word that means listen. Hark, I think I hear a bird singing. So hark means listen. And a herald is someone who announces a message. So in the old days, it might be a town crier. Five o'clock and all is well. Or or something like that. Someone who is heralding the news. And so, hark the herald angels sing means listen. Listen to what they say. And so let's do that. Let's see what what the angels say to the shepherds and hark to what the herald angels say. And of course, the first thing that an angel has to say when he shows up to a group of people in the middle of the night is, don't be afraid. He would have to say that to me. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, there are three very marvelous things that he says right off. He is bringing good news. This is the same word that we get our word evangelism from. It means good message or good news. So I'm bringing you good news. Of great joy. So this is something to be extraordinarily happy about. And then here's the third thing. It's not just for the Jewish people. It is for all people. But it gets even better. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. 
Now, with all the marvelous things that Jesus was and continues to be, there is none more marvelous to the ears of awakened sinners than to hear that he is a Savior. Because our greatest need is not to be schooled in the philosophy of Christianity. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven and to be made right with God. And the Bible teaches that the only way that that can happen is if you have a Savior. And so Jesus Christ was born from the beginning to be a Savior. And if you recognize him to be a great teacher, a great moralizer, whatever else you can add to the list, but you leave out the fact that he is a Savior, you have missed the key of knowledge. You will never really know Jesus Christ until you know him as Savior. And that is the greatest need. I don't need to tell some of you. You know that you are wrong with God. You know that you have sinned and that that God has every right to be offended with you. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for you? There is one hope, and that hope is in the Savior. And so today I say to you, I'm not an angel, but I am a messenger. Rejoice, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for people like you. Long ago in the city of David, there was born a wonderful child, and he is a Savior. And he is able to save to the lowest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. At this time, the Lord Jesus Christ had not yet done the work that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. He would grow up and eventually have to die on the cross, and he died as a substitute for sinners. But all of his life, from his conception to this very moment, he is a Savior, and that is good news of great joy. And then the angel tells them how they will find him, and so then suddenly... There is a great company of the heavenly host. And notice the song that they are singing. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. I think that the angels had never seen God's glory raised to such a high pitch as they had seen it here. Now, it seems to me that the Bible teaches that when God created the worlds, the angels had already been created. Because there's a passage in the book of Job that talks about when the worlds were created, the morning stars sang for joy. And so many of us take that to mean that there were angels who were witnessing and they had, they had seen God speak the worlds into existence. And they sang his praises then, they sang for joy. And then <clears throat> as time went on and human beings were created, no doubt the angels were filled with wonder at these, these new creatures who had been created in God's image. How, how beautiful, how admirable they were. And then how surprised they must have been when God, after the human sin, did not condemn them to hell, but instead made provision for their reconciliation to him. And there probably was a song that went up from the angels then when they saw how gracious God had been. No doubt it was a happy angel who one day on Mount Moriah said to, said to Abraham, Abraham, don't touch the boy. God knows that you love him more than anything. You've not withheld your son, your only son. And I'm sure that there was a, 
a chorus of hallelujahs that echoed through the halls of eternity as the angels said, glory to God, glory to God. And as the angels witnessed God's patient dealing with, uh, with the world and especially with the family of Abraham through the ages, no doubt there were songs of praise echoing up from those, those orders of angels. But on this day, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, then the angel said, more than ever before, let the praise of God be raised to his highest pitch. The very best choir of angels, let them take their place in the choir. Give them the most hallelujah filled song that has ever been thought of. Glory to God in the highest. And then I wouldn't be surprised if there was an answering choir on the other side that said to these angels who had appeared to the angels, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Because this great glory of God that deserved the highest praise. Was in response to this incredible unimaginable condescension. That when he who had been the object of the angels praises. From the moment that they had been created up until right now. Even the second person of the Trinity became a baby and came to be a Savior. Hark, the herald angels sing a good song. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that that's the best Christian hymn of all. Hark, the herald angels sing. It is a magnificent song. We're going to get an opportunity to sing it at the conclusion of this service. If you've never thought about it very carefully... Really think about it carefully when we sing it. But the final thing that I want you to see is uh, the example of the shepherds. The first thing is they hurried to Bethlehem. They saw that this was an urgent event. It, it required their immediate attention. And I want to urge that upon you as an example that you ought to follow. Don't always be putting off what needs to be done today with regard to your spiritual health. The adage, don't put off until tomorrow what can be done today, is never more true than when it has to do with spiritual things. The Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. You know, you have no control over the last moment that you lived. You have no control over changing what you did this morning. You can't alter the past. And you cannot live in the future. You may live to see the future, but the moment that you have is this moment right now. And it's gone as quickly as we realize that. But this is the time. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Bible says call upon the Lord while he is near. Seek him while he may be found. And so the shepherds said, well, let's, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened that the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They hurried, and then they saw. They experienced it themselves. They didn't stay outside the stable and say, hey, somebody go in there and tell us what's going on. They saw Mary and Joseph and the baby. And the Bible is full of exhortations that we should not be content with second-hand information about God and Christ and his gospel. 
That we should want to taste and see that the Lord is good. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Don't just stand outside and do research about the water. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And whatever else that means, it means this. You must have a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ if you are going to be nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be something in your experience that is analogous to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Of course, when we think about his flesh and blood, it especially reminds us of a a mutilated Christ. Someone who has been badly wounded. That's when the flesh and the blood becomes obvious. And that's where the Lord directs your attention. Look to Jesus as a Savior dying for sinners. Look to him as he is on the cross. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look at that cross and, and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And that is how you begin to have a personal experience of God. These shepherds hurried. They saw, then they told, they told Mary what they had seen. And then when they left, they told other people. And everyone who heard what the shepherds said wondered at what they were told. Now, you can do that. You don't have to go to seminary to tell what you have experienced, do you? You can be like that woman at the well who said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What a weak witness. But yet the Bible says, because of the woman's words, many in that town became believers. I I could spend the next 10 minutes telling you about stories that I know about people who were saved through incredibly weak witnesses. Somebody just spoke a word. Someone just rebuked a young man, my father, for using bad language, resulted in his conversion. I've got other stories like that, that just, you never know what kind of a little seed God will use that drops from your mouth, but let the seeds drop. Don't be mute. Be like the shepherds. Tell what you have seen. And then the fourth thing about the shepherds, the final thing in this sermon, is that they returned, they went back to their job, they went back to their sheep. But notice what it says about them, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And that should be our response to everything that we learn in theology, everything that we learn about Christ and Christology ought to have this effect, that it causes us to glorify and praise God for all that they had heard and seen. I quoted the opening stanza of a Christmas song just a few minutes ago, and I'll, I'll conclude with that and then ask Jim Bob to come and lead us in our concluding hymn. But uh, there is a Christmas carol that says, Thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. And then the chorus of that song is, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. Can you say that? Can you say, oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. You have said in your word, as many as received him, as many as received Christ, to them he gives the power to become the the children of God. 
Lord Jesus, help me to receive you into my heart and into my life, for I need a Savior. Now pay close attention to this song as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs> 